Hey, it's lovely to have you back again this week. Today's guest is Peter Brown, who is co-author of a book that has really resonated in the past couple of years with learning practitioners. It's called Make It Stick. And it was written with one purpose in mind, which is to find out how we can make learning easier and learning's durable. And Make It Stick draws on recent breakthroughs in cognitive psychology and explains how knowledge transferred in training is encoded, accessed, and retrieved in the minds of learners. I'm not sure about you, but that stuff really fascinates me. Because when you run training programs, you want to impart knowledge, but you also want that knowledge to be retained so learning gains don't fade quickly. And I think that the science behind successful learning should really interest every learning professional. It certainly does in my case. And I'm reading a testimonial from a reader, uh, someone who purchased the book. Uh, This is on Amazon. And what the reader says is, I've been an educator for over 25 years and can assure you that this book is the best guide to efficient learning in existence. The last chapter alone is worth more than the sum of everything else I've ever read on how to learn efficiently. A wonderful, original, insightful, and priceless book. That's high praise indeed. So in today's episode, what does the latest cognitive science tell us about learning? How do we deliver learning so that it sticks and becomes durable? How do we create opportunities for retrieval practice? This is what Peter Brown calls it. What does the science tell us about the most effective ways to practice retrieval? And how spaced out should be those sessions where retrieval practice is practiced? How do we refresh learning as training? And of course, how do we deal with the illusion of knowing, and this is where you encounter people who don't feel that they need training, and this is what we often call unconscious incompetence. It's a fascinating episode, and I'm delighted to chat with Peter today. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Peter, hi. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's great to be on the podcast. So the reason I have invited you is because of the impact which your book has had on people like me, people who are training professionals, be it self-employed or people who are corporate employees in learning and development. Can I ask you, first of all, what prompted you to write the book, Make It Stick? Well, it's kind of a personal story. My co-authors are two cognitive uh, psychologists from Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, Henry Rodiger, who's a member of the National Academy of Science, uh, and Mark McDaniel, both of them very prominent in the field of memory and learning. And Rodiger happens to be my brother-in-law, has been for 41 years. He was leading a team of uh, colleagues from different universities around the U.S., over 10 years on the question, uh, this is funded by a foundation, they wanted answers to the question, what leads to learning? And we were at a family event uh, and we were chatting. He said, you know, I'm coming to the end of this decade with my team and what we're finding about learning is counterintuitive. We're trying to figure out how to get it out to a general audience and we're wondering about a book. And uh, so that's how I got involved in it. Uh, I'm a writer, and uh, we decided we'd give it a shot as a collaboration. Uh, So that's how I got into it. Uh, And one of the benefits of that, I think, turned out to be the fact that I didn't know any of the science and uh, was only 
really able to write about it if I understood it and could make sense of it as it related to uh, the world that I live in. And uh, so I was, that's how I got into it. It was, I just had no idea whether it was going to be successful or not. Of course, you never do. What does the cognitive science then these days tell us about learning? And the reason I ask that question is because many of us, when we're in front of people, we, we want to de- deliver programs or training which has the greatest impact. But sometimes we're not necessarily informed about how to do it and how to make it stick, which I think is, of course, the reason why that title is so so uh, relevant to what I do professionally. So what does the science tell us about, you know, what learning is, how it works, and how we can get people to retain information which we, at expense to our clients, deliver to their people? It's a challenge because people really need to create their own understanding of new material. And uh, that means uh, they need to, when they encounter something new or a new skill or what have you, they need to somehow find a way to relate it to what they already know. You can't learn something new that doesn't connect to something that you already know. So when you have something you're trying to impart, uh, the challenge becomes how to engage the learner uh, in a way in which the puzzle is presented or the question and uh, the learner is uh, helped or coached to uh, try to answer it and come up with a solution and get some feedback and so forth. And so that idea of creating their own understanding is really important instead of just laying out a formula or a map or what have you in a lecture form to make it stick. uh, You have to, as a learner, practices uh, recalling of the new information that you've learned and helping strengthen the connections to what you already know. So there's really like three big ideas here. One is trying to figure something out and getting corrective feedback and uh, creating that understanding. The second big idea is asking yourself, requiring yourself, to retrieve that knowledge later uh, and struggling to bring it up. Uh, And the third big idea is to uh, space out and mix up your practice of new information with with related material, uh, which makes it harder to recall or harder to practice uh, than if you practice the same thing over and over again. Uh, If you're trying to learn to identify the works of painters, you're better off looking at uh, a a variety of painters' works in a mixed way. You learn better how to recognize something you haven't seen before, a piece of art, and identify who painted it than if you study many Picassos and then many Clays and then many Cezans and so forth. Uh, The practice by block feels like you're getting it better. The practice in a mixed fashion feels very ragged and frustrating, but your mind becomes better at identifying the unifying characteristics and the differences between the works of artists, and you perform much better on a test later. So creating your own understanding, retrieving it from memory, practicing in a in a mixed fashion. They're the three main ideas from the book. Well, they are three main ideas from the book. There are some others, but I, I would say, yes, that's it. Uh, and one of the things that 
uh, sticks in my mind is when I, uh, and many people would agree with this listening, is that when we become trainers, we're often brought through some core building blocks of what's called adult learning theory. How do adults learn? The reason we need to know this is so that we can actually design training and deliver training or learning which uh, helps people to process, retain, and use information. One of the things that you allegedly refute is is what often it has become fashionable, or at least when I did this Train the Trainer program, my very first one, was this concept of how adults learn based upon visual, auditory, and kinesthetic learning modes. What are the fashionable ideas that your book has upended or refuted? Is that one of them? Yes, the idea that each of us has a particular learning style and that we learn something better if it's presented in a way that's consistent with our preferred style. Uh, we have, I wouldn't say we have upended this. There's been a, a large meta study uh, by scientists saying, here are the uh, aspects of good research uh, that we're looking for in studies of uh, learning styles. And we want to find those studies and see if they meet those criteria. And uh, in fact, uh, there is not a, a solid basis for that theory that you learn better when you're presented a material consistent with your preferred style. Now, you might spend more time at it if you feel more comfortable with the way it's presented, but uh, that just does not hold up. Uh, all of these strategies of, of retrieval practice based in mixed practice and so forth, the cognitive science has come to understand better in the last uh, couple of decades work across the board, uh, regardless of your preferred style. It seems that if you're trying to learn the works of painters, uh, you need a, to have a visual kind of presentation. If you want to learn to ride a bike, it's a different kind of learning. Uh, so the way it's presented, uh, if you're learning music or what have you, is probably more important aligned with the content of the material, the form of the material, than whether you don't like to read or you prefer to hear the spoken word or what have you. So if people are designing programs, imparting training, how can we design this in such a way that people can um, apply it best? This is, this is a good question. It's something that I've struggled with a little bit myself since Make a Stick came out and I'm invited to go speak to faculty. Uh, you know, when I started... Uh, book came out in 2014, I would go stand up in front of a group of faculty uh, somewhere or a group of room full of trainers and say, you know, here's what the research shows about how training works. And we'd have a little discussion and that would be it. Uh, well, that's clearly not the way, <laughs> the way learning happens. And so uh, I myself have migrated to a strategy where um, I ask uh, the host to have participants, a read, if not read, make it stick, uh, read uh, some uh, summary material uh, about the science of learning. And I pose a question. Uh, let's say it's a, a faculty group. Uh, what can you tell your students at the beginning of the semester uh, that will help them be successful in this course? Uh, and other questions like, uh, what can you do in the classroom to help students 
create their own understanding of their material. Then when we get to finally get together, we get some chats back because people are wrestled with these questions a little bit. Then we have a conversation uh, and I'm able to relate uh, what people are describing as possible strategies to what we understand from the science. So the question is, in my mind, uh, how to engage people in the question or the problem or the learning at the beginning instead of saying, here it is, go study it. Uh, there's some great examples that have come forward. Uh, there's a, a, a company that uh, was in touch with us that trains ship pilots uh, how to use technology to avoid collisions with other ships or islands uh, when they're, uh, you know, they've got some kind of big cargo uh, operation going. And they're having a problem because uh, the technology is kind of confusing and they have radar and other kinds of technologies. And there is a great example of ask them what they see on the radar and what they think that would uh, manifest itself in the other instruments they've got. And then uh, start the other way. Start with the instruments, see what they're getting, and ask themselves, what do you think the radar shows uh, that would line up with these signals? So engage them in trying to figure out the problem and then discussing uh, how, they're, you know, how they come to their answers and how, uh, what the corrective feedback is and why. So I think that's the big challenge is how do we engage people in the problem at the outset and then help work them through. It's like sports teams getting ready to meet the opposition the next Saturday and looking at videos. What's the problem? This is how they're playing. What are you going to do? And try to work that out. You have all week long to try to figure out what do I do about that problem? You've heard, I'm sure, of the Ebbinghaus curve. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I think that's something that many, many trainers know. We tell our audiences or we tell our clients in, in training sessions, look, uh, the reason we're doing it this way is because in some point or in the very near future, in fact, in the next 24 or 48 hours, you will more than likely uh, forget a lot of what we're going to do today. For that reason, here's what we suggest to ensure that that training or the information is practiced and then you can retrieve it. Um, what does Make It Stick talk about in the book in terms of effective ways to make information uh, enjoyable such that people want to practice, not just have to practice, but want to retrieve it, want to use it, want to actually apply it? Well, I don't think we really address that question so much as uh, helping people understand that uh, when you're trying to retrieve uh, something you've learned earlier, and it's a little difficult because you've gotten rusty, uh, that that extra difficulty is not a sign that you're not getting it. It's a sign that you are refreshing those connections. And that is, uh, that is assuming you're able to do that, you don't wait so long that you can't retrieve it successfully, but you wait until it's a little more difficult. That extra effort to refresh that memory and the connections in the brain uh, really strengthens your cues for retrieval and the abetting of that information and updates it with what you've learned since. So it's not as much about being pleasurable as it is accepting the fact that uh, there's some <laughs> effort involved in uh, when you mix up your practice, uh, you space out your practice, uh, 
Um, and this difficulty uh, isn't a problem. It's how you interpret it that's a problem. If you interpret it as I'm not up to snuff, I can't, I, you know, I'm, I didn't really get it. Uh, that's not good. If you interpret it as it's a good thing I'm doing this now because uh, going through this process is going to make it easier next time and the time after that and the time after that. There's something else you refer to in the book is the illusion of knowing, if I recall that properly. And this is something I encounter and many trainers do, which is that we're presenting training to a group of people, to a cohort, and some of them don't believe they actually need the training. They don't believe they need to be there. Um, how do we deal with this illusion of knowing that I, I know this stuff, I don't need this training, I don't need this coaching? Not for me, thanks. Well, you need to have, uh, you need to be challenged to demonstrate that you have mastery of it. And you need that uh, demonstration from time to time. There's a, a company, a number of companies are taking a, a science of learning as it's recently been understood and turning it into uh, very helpful services for trainers and organizations. One that comes to mind, uh, I have no connection with this company, but it's, it's called Amplifier. One of the things they've looked at is, is situations where uh, there's uh, a high cost to uh, errors made by employees. One situation uh, is in a hospital where uh, uh, you get uh, bloodline infections uh, from improper insertion of catheters or needles. And what this company has figured out is um, how to survey uh, the people involved in that kind of work and find out where they have high confidence in erroneous information. That's a real key area. If they can zero in on where there's high confidence in erroneous information and then retrain and retest those people, they show a dramatic uh, reduction in errors. Uh, so the, the larger question is, uh, how do we, from time to time, uh, ask our employees or ourselves to demonstrate that we, in fact, do know and can do the things we think we know and can do. And in different organizations in the military, it's different from in the financial services business or, or a nuclear power plant. You want to make sure people are on, on top of uh, the proper protocols when things uh, go right or go wrong. Every place you go where the stakes are important for getting it right, you need to have this circle that comes back from time to time in different ways uh, that require you to demonstrate that you have that knowledge or skill. So if we're designing training, we need to not just deliver a program, but think of what we can do before the program and then after the program, some kind of easy activities, efficient or speedy practices to promote learning, repeated exposure, I guess. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, it might be a simple app from uh, you know, one of the many online uh, app services. Or quizzes, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly right. Where, you know, you go away for uh, a weekend uh, as a in-service training. You're an accountant, you're a physician or whatever. You learn some particular thing. And uh, after that, uh, you may not encounter that problem again for a long time. Uh, so between then and when you encounter it, you need to have it pop up on your phone once in a while uh, so that you uh, you get the right, you know, you can show that you know it. Uh so whatever it is you're doing, if it's important that these people are on top of the knowledge or the skill, uh, you need ways of, of poking them 
you know, to say, oh, I remember that. You do this, you do that, you do this other thing or whatever it is. And I think I think this is uh, officially called the Dunning-Kruger effect, is it? Where people who are the least competent tend to overestimate their competence the most. <laughs> well, yeah, that Dunning-Kruger, exactly right. Uh, <laughs> this is right. This is There's some very interesting research and uh, you can, uh, any listener can look up Dun- the Dunning-Kruger effect and read this fascinating information about how uh, uh, certain uh, people who are not competent and are not self-aware enough to realize their incompetence are not very good at learning uh, from experience. (laughs) (laughs) It's so prevalent, yeah. (laughs) The the person who actually needs the training the most is the person who's confident the most they don't need the training. (laughs) Well, often often true, Yeah. (laughs) So we, we need to, I suppose, make some almost gamification possible where we think of uh, frequent quizzing or some kind of peer instruction or some kind of simulation where people uh, who think they don't need the training at least have some find some kind of appeal in testing themselves. So when, they, when it's revealed to, to them themselves through self-directed learning or self-directed testing that they don't know things, then they're more likely to be able to calibrate and... and uh, and fill in the gaps themselves. And this is where I often find the most problem is, as I've alluded to, people who actually don't think they need it are the ones who need it the most. And it's, it's so, so common. Um, and I've, and I, the people I speak to say the same thing. It's the people who are at the back, the people who are putting up resistance or the people who actually need the training the most. It's just getting through to them and convincing them that there are knowledge gaps and it's in their interest to learn. There are businesses, uh, as I mentioned, using this science in the training uh, area uh, where they have taken gamification uh, and they go to uh, a company and say, you know, who are you trying to train your, your first line? Maybe it's a fast food business or whatever the business is. And they work with that business to create uh, a competitive um, retrieval practice platform that goes through on the phones is highly engaging uh, and constantly keeps people uh, on their toes uh, remembering, recalling, applying uh, what training they need to have. It's, it's pretty great what's happening uh, in that sphere. Have you plans to write another book in, in this area of, of learning? or? Well, we're having that conversation. Uh, one of the issues... Uh, I think, Mark, is that I used to work in a big corporation and you have a, a number of training things you had to check off that you'd been to. It might be compliance, it might be uh, diversity or whatever it was, various, like a seminar you had to go to check it off. I mean, the main thing was, <clears throat> was that box checked or not checked? And uh, checking the box is the same as learning the material. Uh so it's clear from in the while since the book came out, you know, we've been with a number of institutional type places like a nuclear power plant or a financial services firm or these medical schools, military, as well as, uh, you know, academic areas. In the institutional area, you kind of need to turn the ship uh, in the role of training and how training is structured in the institution, find a way to turn it, to see it as an ongoing, uh, constructive, creative process 
and, and rather than a series of uh, lectures or uh, what have you. Uh, so I think when you ask, are we writing a, another book, we're asking ourselves, is there enough evidence now? And there's been quite a bit where uh, organizations have uh, actually restructured the way they uh, look at training and deliver training within their organization and what kinds of uh, uh, results they're getting. Yeah, so fascinating. I'm, the, the science is coming thick and fast, and um, I, I'd look forward to, to hearing. Is there anywhere that you could recommend people go for more interim research? The book came out in 2014. Is there a good site you'd recommend where people who are learning practitioners could head to and um, update themselves in terms of what cognitive science is uh, revealing? Well, uh, well, there's our site, makeitstick.com. Um, that one actually is rather, uh, what do I want to say? We don't keep posting uh, new stuff, uh, but there are some links in it. There's an organization called retrievalpractice.org, uh, and there's one called The Learning Scientists, plural scientists, Dot org uh, that are much more active uh, out there. Um, mostly, I would say, with uh, uh, the educational community. Um, but really, since Make It Stick came out in 2014, um, there hasn't been a whole lot new. Uh, we've come to understand a little better in mixed practice that it's useful if you mix problem types within the domain rather than mixing your practice across domains. Um, there's some things like that, but um, the fundamentals of uh, spaced uh, learning, uh, retrieval practice, mixing your practice, those ideas uh, just keep being affirmed over and over again. Okay, Peter, thank you very much for being my guest today on the show. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. A huge thanks to Peter for being my guest today on the show. And of course, a huge thanks to you for tuning in again this week. If this was your first time here, welcome. And if it wasn't your first time here, welcome back. And it's delightful to know that you tune in and that you can keep on providing suggestions for the kinds of guests and the kinds of authors to feature on the show. And of course, the kinds of topics to address if you've got some great ideas for episodes and content, I'm sure you do. Please keep them coming. And you can email me personally via mark at trainingbusiness.com. Can I also please ask you to subscribe to the podcast on whichever podcast platform you listen to the show? It could be on Apple, it could be on Stitcher, Spotify, or many more. There is a fresh episode next Thursday, as there is every single Thursday. And I look forward to your company then. Please keep those suggestions coming and connect with us on social media. You can check out, of course, the blog on trainingbusiness.com. Until next time, take care. Bye for now. Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.